put your hand up in the chat if you've ever heard someone say, um, or a Christian say, I'm just a sinner saved by grace. I'm just a sinner saved by grace. Or, or let me know if you've ever said that. Put your hands up in the chat. This isn't like a condemning or shaming anyone. My hand's up too. Um, so let me know if you've ever heard believers say, I'm just a sinner saved by grace. Or you've ever said, I'm just a sinner saved by grace. Um, because I understand the sentiment. I understand the heart. I understand the desire to remain humble and not grow prideful and have an ego. I get the sentiment. I get it. I've been there. The problem is it's wrong. <laughs> it's wrong to say I'm just a sinner saved by grace. Biblically, I'm going to show you through the scriptures that you're not, if you're in Christ, if you're a child of God, if you're forgiven, if you're righteous, if you're positioned in the Son, you are not a sinner. And, and some people say, I'm just a sinner saved by grace to humble themselves and exalt the, the grace and the glory of God. But let me tell you right now, to say I'm just a sinner saved by grace, it actually doesn't magnify the grace of God the way people think. It actually minimizes it because you're actually not a sinner anymore, right? To struggle with sin and to give in to sin at times, but to be positioned in Christ doesn't make you a sinner. And we'll look at that, okay? You're actually a child of God. It's more accurate to say, hey, I was a sinner and I am now a child of God. That exalts his glory and his grace more. It more. It's not egotistical or prideful to, to actually identify with who God says you are. You can actually detach the sinner part from the saved by grace part, right? Because in that statement you have, I'm a sinner saved by grace. You can detach the sinner part and say, I am saved by grace. I don't have to say I am a sinner to say that I'm saved by grace because I'm not a sinner anymore. I am saved by grace. I am a child of God. I used to be a sinner even though I struggle with sin. I struggle with the flesh. I struggle with giving in to old tendencies and habits and thought patterns that, that aren't Christ-like. That doesn't make me a sinner. And I'm going to show you in the scripture why to say, if you're a Christian, to say that you're a sinner saved by grace is, is unbiblical, it's false, and it minimizes the grace of God. And I realize these are strong statements. I really get that. But I want you to understand who you identify yourself as, what you identify with is going to drive your life. Um, and so I'm trying to get you to understand, stop saying, I'm a sinner saved by grace, because that's actually to identify with sin. That's to identify with your failures and say, that's who I am, and I'm my failures, and I'm my darkness, and I'm the sin of my life. And you're not. You are who God says you are, and he doesn't say you're that anymore. Outside of Christ, sure, that's all that there is. But in Christ, mm, there's so much more. Um, let me take it to Romans 7, verse 5, to show you what I mean. <clears throat> in our series where we talked about free grace theology versus lordship salvation, I addressed Romans 6 and 7 in depth. And so I'm not going to do that today. You can go and watch that um, in a previous episode. And I encourage you, if you haven't watched the previous three episodes in this series, all about being a child of God and your identity, go back and watch those. You don't have to, to understand today's message, but it, it helps. 
Okay, so I've gone through in depth Romans 6 and 7. I just want to show you a few things. And what Paul says about who we are now. Watch. Romans chapter 7 verse 5. It says, while we were living in the flesh. Okay, catch that. While we were living in the flesh, our sinful passions aroused by the law were at work. Notice the past tense verbiage. We were living in the flesh. Our sinful passions were at work, bearing fruit for death. But now, notice the shift from where we were, what we used to be, what we used to identify with, to what is currently true. But now, we are released from the law. Having died, another past tense verb, as something we've done, we've died to that which held us captive so that we can serve in the new way of the spirit and not in the old way of the written code. Jump down to verse 14 right here, okay? It says, we know that the law of God is spiritual, right? The law is not bad, just can't save you. The law points out your failures and points you to the one who actually paid for it. We know the law is spiritual, but I am of the flesh, sold under sin. Now, I've, went, I've gone through Romans 6 and 7 where I talk through. Most people interpret this passage as Paul currently, as a believer, saying this about himself. But actually what he's doing is he's identifying with his old self as a Jew, under the law, without Christ, and he's speaking as that, you know, as that hypothetical old reality, as if it were true now. He's saying, I am of the flesh, sold under sin. Speaking as um, an, an unsaved Jew prior to his transformation, prior to his salvation. I've gone through this. Um, so Paul's not speaking as a Christian, born again, going, I'm of the flesh, and I'll show you why. Um, he, but look, the law is spiritual. There are those who are of the flesh, right here, sold under sin. We are not sold under sin anymore. We're actually not. We're not under the law in that sense where we're penalized and condemned and declared dead. That's not true of us anymore. So we're not sold under sin. Therefore, since this is not true of us, whoever this is true of, the one who is of the flesh, that can't be who we are. That's actually who we used to be. Verse 18, I know that nothing good dwells in me that is in my flesh. I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. That doesn't sound like a believer. We do have the ability to carry it out. We do have the ability to escape every temptation. We do have the ability to walk by the Spirit. We do have the ability to choose righteousness and obedience in any given moment. We do have that ability. Paul's not speaking as a believer. He's speaking as an unsaved Jewish person under the law, condemned, heading to death, who he used to be, okay? So don't get caught up in the present tense verbiage. It can be confusing, but let me take you to Romans 8, verse 5. It says, those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh, right? He already talked about those who are of the flesh, under the law, sold under sin. Those are three descriptions of one person, one kind of person. And those who live according to the flesh, that's another way to describe the same person and the same reality of their life. They set their minds on the things of the flesh, but contrasted, this word but notes, a very different thing is about to be said. 
Those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. And this is not talking about a Christian living in two different realities. And sometimes I'm of the flesh, sometimes I'm of the Spirit. This is talking about you're either sold under the flesh, living according to the flesh without Christ, or you live according to the Spirit, which doesn't note perfection. What it notes is that the Spirit predominantly leads your life. Go down to verse 8. Those who are in the flesh can't please God. Watch the transition in verse 9. You, speaking to believers in Rome, you, however, are not in the flesh or of the flesh. In other words, a Christian is not someone who is of the flesh, in the flesh, identifies with the sinful passions that exist in their body. That's not who you are. We've already been over this. But in fact, you're in the spirit. There are two different kinds of people. Those who are in the flesh, of the flesh, under the law, sold under sin, operating in the flesh, or... Option number two, those who are in the Spirit. To be in the Spirit simply means the Spirit of God dwells in you. Read the end of verse nine. Anyone who doesn't have the Spirit of Christ doesn't belong to him. So this is talking about ownership. Who owns you? The flesh, sin, darkness, death, the kingdom of Satan, or God? God owns those who are filled with the Spirit The reason I'm telling you this is because as long as you continue, and I'm not saying all of the people who say, I'm just a sinner saved by grace, are operating in false humility. But I do believe that to constantly live in that reality can do one of two things. If I just, I'm a sinner saved by grace, and that's constantly your your mantra, one of two options is going to be true. Number one, you will justify sin in your life, you'll excuse sin in your life, you'll continue giving into sin in your life because I'm just a sinner, what else can I do? Or option number two, it can produce this false humility where you're thinking you're more humble than you are, all glory to God, when you're actually not identifying with who he says you are. So I, I want you to understand, Christians, number one, And I'm going to tell you three things about a born-again believer because we're talking about identity. Born-again believers are not sinners. The word sinner literally means a sinful one, a depraved one, a detestable one, a wicked one, a rejected one, one who is not free from sin. that's, That's the literal usage of the word in Scripture. I have done an entire survey of the whole Bible looking at every instance of the word sinner. Do you know what I have never once come across? I've never once come across someone who is a believer yet a sinner at the same time. We have to learn to realize or learn this. There's a difference between someone who is a sinner, that's their identity, that's their core essence, that's their nature, that's what they're identified with, versus someone who is a believer and struggles with the flesh and sin and fights and armors up and sometimes gives in and calls out for forgiveness and confesses and repents. There's a huge biblical difference between someone who is a sinner 
and someone who is a believer and happens to struggle with sin. The word sinner, again, in scripture, I've surveyed everywhere, there's no such thing that I've come across where there's a believer who is a sinner or there's a righteous person who's a sinner. Those are two opposite ideas. You're either righteous or you're a sinner. You're either saved or you're a sinner. You either trust in the God of Israel or you're a sinner. Those are the only two options. I've surveyed everything. I'm going to give you everything I've come across right now. And I'm going to give you some homework because I don't have time to go through every one of these scriptures and pull it up and read through it. So what I'm going to tell you is the reference and then what it says and then you go and do your homework so you can test what I'm saying. I want you to actually evaluate what I'm saying. I want you to test what I'm saying. I don't want you to mindlessly receive what I'm saying because I've said something right before. Don't ever do that. Always have your discernment on. So, the first time you see the word sinner explicitly used is in Genesis 13, verse 13. Now, this doesn't mean this is the first instance of sin. This is just the first explicit no, usage of the Hebrew word for sinner. Genesis 13, 13, we have the men of Sodom are great sinners against the Lord, okay? What happens to them? They're wiped out. What I should say is this again. I have not come across any instance of someone who's both a believer and a sinner or both righteous and a sinner. I've also not come across any occurrence where someone used to be born again, a believer, had faith in Jesus, righteous, and then they went back to being a sinner. It's, that's not something you'll find. Okay? <clears throat> 1 Samuel 15 verse 18 is the next occurrence. Quite a big jump. King Saul, and there might be some in between that I chose not to reference because it was just too vast, um, so I should preface this by saying this is not going to be uh, an exhaustive list of every single instance. These are just the main occurrences. You can, you can test me on this and go do a word study. Look, look for the word sinner. Use biblehub.com. Use uh, Bible study. Use Logos Bible software and do a word search of every time the word sinner is used. Um, if, if my, here's what I do. Look, I'll show you on my own Bible study tool right here. This is Bible study by Olive Tree. What I have a search is a search bar at the top right. You can see it. I'm pointing to it like you can see my hands. And what I'll do is I'll type the word sinner. Boom, I'll hit enter. Now in the ESV, there are 21 occurrences of the word sinner. You can also put the word sinners. There's 50 occurrences of that word. <clears throat> you can also put, um, I don't know, I'm trying to think of any variation of the word. But let's go through this. For those that are, you know, I, I understand um, that there's going to be pushback because some of you have been, you've been wired, you've been trained to think like this. And I, I'm not here to tell you that I'm capable of changing your mind. My job is to put forth what the scriptures say. And then it, that's, at that point, if you disagree, that's between you and God, not me. Okay, 1 Samuel 15, 18, King Saul was told to devote the sinners to destruction, the Amalekites. Proverbs eleven thirty one. we see that a sinner is distinct from the righteous. 
I'm giving you every reference, okay? Uh, in fact, let's just do this for those that want to test me. He's not pulling it up because he can't prove it. If the righteous is repaid on the earth, how much more the wicked and the sinner? They're contrasted, okay? Proverbs 14, 21. Let's go through this. I said I wouldn't. I changed my mind. Whoever despises his neighbor is a sinner, right? But blessed is he who is generous to the poor. Contrasted individuals. Ecclesiastes 7, 26. And I'm going somewhere with this. <clears throat> if I find something more bitter than death, the woman whose heart is, <clears throat> I'm sorry, the woman whose heart is snares and nets and whose hands are fetters, he who pleases God escapes her, but the sinner is taken by her. Notice once again, there's a contrast between the one who pleases God and the one who is a sinner, okay? I'm just laying the groundwork because I'm gonna show you in scripture what it means that we're forgiven, what it means that we're righteous. That's who you are, not a sinner. Not a sinner. <coughs> Ecclesiastes 8 says, Then I saw the wicked buried. They used to go in and out of the holy place. They were praised where they did such things because the sentence against an evil deed is not executed speedily. The heart of children of man is fully set to do evil. Okay, that's the wicked. Though a sinner does evil a hundred times and prolongs his life, yet I know that it will be well with those who fear God. Completely different individual here, right? Those who fear God <clears throat> versus the sinner versus the wicked. You see it? They do not fear God. They are not righteous. They, they're not, <clears throat> well, their hands are actually inclined to do evil. Let's go on to chapter nine, verse two of Ecclesiastes. It is the same for all since the same event happens to the righteous and the wicked, okay? The good and the evil, right? The clean, the unclean, those who sacrifice as the good versus the sinner. Oops, I used the wrong color. Okay, I know this is a bit tedious. But look, there's a contrast between the righteous and the sinner, the good and the bad, the clean, the unclean. We've only just begun, so everyone hold your arguments, please. It's silly <clears throat> to cut someone off. Rebels and sinners shall be broken together, okay? Shall be broken together, and those who forsake the Lord shall be consumed. So guess what? Those who are called sinners are those who do what? Forsake the Lord, okay? Forsake the Lord. Isaiah 13, 9. Behold, the day of the Lord comes, cruel with wrath and fierce anger to make the land a desolation. Guess who's being destroyed? Sinners. Notice how there's wrath, there's judgment, there's fire, there's condemnation, there's, you know, punishment and for the wicked, those who are sinners, those who forsake the Lord, those who don't trust in God. The sinners, again, in Zion are afraid. They're godless, okay? Consuming fire and everlasting burning is what's associated with the sinner, okay? Let's keep going. <clears throat> Isaiah 65, 20. No more shall there be in it an infant who lives but a few days, uh, who doesn't fill out his days, for the young man shall die. The sinner, a hundred years old, shall be accursed. Notice every time the word sinner is used or the sinner is referenced, uh, they're wicked, there's judgment, they don't last long on the earth, uh, they won't inherit the earth, they're removed. Let's keep going, Psalm 1-5. 
the wicked will not stand in the judgment, right? Nor sinners in the congregation of the who? The righteous. But the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the wicked will perish. Notice the contrast once again. The wicked and sinner versus the righteous. There's no, there's no lines being blurred. There's no middle ground. There's no, I'm both a sinner and I'm righteous, or I'm righteous and a sinner. You're, those are two dip, polar opposite individuals. Psalm 26, 9, don't sweep away my soul with the sinners. Notice again, they do evil in their right hand or bribe. They're swept away. That's judgment language. Notice how every time the sinner is referenced, it has something to do with judgment. <clears throat> sinners will be consumed from the earth. Let the wicked be no more. Right? Let's keep going. Psalm 25, verse 8. And we could do this on and on and on. Good and upright is the Lord. He instructs sinners, right, in the way. This is what Jesus says. I came not for the righteous, but for the sinners to get them on the right path. Okay? Um... Psalm 51, 13. He says, Then I will teach transgressors, transgressors your way, and sinners will return to you. So there is a call for sinners to return. Once they return, though, once they turn to the ways of God, guess what they're no longer identified as? Okay, Psalm 104, 35. This is just for the people who will undermine what I'm saying because they're going, you're not blowing up the verses. Let sinners be consumed from the earth. We looked at that. Matthew 9, 13. Here we go. New Testament. <clears throat> go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. I came to, not to call the righteous, but who? Sinners. Those who are not right with me. Those who not do not follow Torah. Those who do not trust in the God of Israel, Right? That's who Jesus came to call because why would you need to call someone who's already responded to the call of God and they're living according to his ways? Matthew 26, 45. <clears throat> not saying you can be righteous without Christ, but the point is there are those who are not walking on the paths of, of Yahweh, God of Israel. Matthew 26, 45. Then he came to the disciples and said, sleep and take your rest later on. See the, honor, the hours at hand. The Son of Man is being betrayed into the hands of what? Sinners. Luke 7, 36 through 39, just, just so we all see a full biblical picture of what a sinner is. <clears throat> One of the Pharisees asked him to eat with him, right? Uh, behold, a woman of the city who was a sinner. Ah, growth, right? At least that's how the Pharisee is going to look at her. You know, she brings an alabaster of ointment, starts washing his feet with her, her tears and her hair, and Jesus actually justifies her and says, because the, the Pharisee goes, ah, she's a sinner, blech, gross, Simon, let me tell you something. And in the end, this is what Jesus says. Your sins are forgiven. Your faith has saved you. Go in peace. So guess what she was? She was known as a sinner. She didn't leave as a sinner anymore. Luke 5.32, I haven't come to call the righteous, but those who are sinners. Okay? Luke 6.32, and this is just the groundwork. Wait till we get to what it means to be forgiven. It'll blow your mind. If you love those who love you, what benefit is that to you? Even sinners. So guess what a sinner is capable of? Doing good things. 
Guess what a sinner is capable of? Loving someone. We can't walk around going, well, if you don't know Christ, you're incapable of love at any level. You're incapable of doing any good things. No, they're incapable of doing any good that God merits you know, them righteousness for. They're incapable of doing good enough to get into the kingdom. They're, they're incapable of doing good that God honors and goes, wow, I'm pleased by that. But sinners outside of Christ can still do what is morally good. They can still do what is, you know, qualified as loving. And Jesus is going, look, if you don't have uh, a love that's even greater than, than what sinners have, well, how, well, how are you going to stand out? Just so I tell you, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons. Do you see it? There are people who need repentance because they're outside of Christ. They're not following the ways of God. They're not righteous. And they're those who are already righteous in the sight of God through faith. Um, repentance, look at, there's, there's, a, there's a transition. You go from sinner, then what happens is repentance, and then what happens is, well, you're no longer a sinner, you're righteous. Uh, Luke 18, 13. Just so we're making a clear picture, no one can blame me for not looking at a certain occurrence. The tax collectors, this is Jesus giving a parable. Um, tax collector and a Pharisee go in to pray. Tax collector goes, oh, be merciful to me, a sinner. He identifies himself as a sinner because he knows that he hasn't been dealing justly. He's not been doing the right thing. Um, <coughs> but then we have the Pharisee. Well, the Pharisee goes, oh, thank God I'm not one of these tax collectors. And then Jesus goes, I'll tell you, this man went down to his house justified. He was a sinner, but he left justified because obviously he cried out for mercy. That's repentance, okay? Luke 19, verse, Luke 19, verse 7. Uh, when they saw it all, they grumbled because Jesus goes into the house of Zacchaeus and they go, ah, he went into the house of a sinner. That's how they qualify him. But notice what Jesus says after. He leaves the house of um, Zacchaeus. Jesus goes, today salvation has come to this house. The Son of Man came to seek and save the lost. Who did he say he came to seek and save in Luke 7? The sinners. Who was Zacchaeus? A sinner. Who is he now after apparently having a change of heart and belief in the Messiah and turning back to God? Well, he, Jesus says salvation came to this house today. Okay, so, so notice I'm just building a picture for you that you leave that identification of being a sinner behind once repentance occurs in faith. Uh, Luke 19, 7, um, I already brought up. John 9, 31, watch this. We know that God doesn't listen to sinners. Yeah. But I thought God hears my prayers. Yeah, he hears the prayers of his children and he hears the prayers of repentance coming from a sinner turning from sin, believing in the Messiah, crying out for mercy for sure. But here, what we have is insight into at least how um, the ordinary Jewish, Jewish person thought of a typical sinner and how God related to them. Some of the Pharisees said, this man is not from God. He doesn't keep the Sabbath. How can a man who is a sinner do such signs though? So Jesus heals a blind man. The Pharisees are questioning how it happened. He doesn't keep the Sabbath. He healed on the Sabbath. He can't be holy and righteous. He's a sinner. And then the blind man goes, ah, I think he's a prophet. Because other people are going, how can a man who's a sinner do these kinds of signs? 
So therefore, he's either not a sinner or something's going, something's going on here. Um, so notice how what it means to be a sinner. Verse 24, uh, so for the second time they called to the man who'd been blind, give glory to God, we know this man is a sinner. So they're qualifying Jesus to be a sinner. And then uh, the blind man goes, well, I don't know if he's a sinner. I do know one thing. I was blind and now I see, okay? I know for the average person, this kind of a study is not going to be life-changing, but oh, once you get all of um, this as a foundation to your identity, it'll, it'll change everything, I promise. Romans 3, 7, if through my lie God's truth abounds to his glory, why am I still being condemned as a sinner? This is, you know, what people are saying, almost accusing the apostles, and specifically Paul, of saying, oh, let's sin so that grace may abound. He's going, I didn't say that. You know, <clears throat> some people are going, or Paul's actually speaking on their behalf, going, well, you know, if, if, if my lie abounds to the glory of God, why am I still being condemned as a sinner? Um, why not just do evil so that good may come as some slanderously charge us? Notice how there's condemnation associated with the sinner again, again. And this is very important because notice, when you become a child of God, do you know what is not associated with your life anymore? Condemnation. There's no condemnation for those who are in Christ. Romans 8. Death, penalty, wrath, uh, judgment unto separation. None of that is going to be something that the believer will ever experience. Um, it's very, very clear in Scripture. First Peter 4. It is time for judgment to begin at the household of God. And if it begins with us, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel? So there are those who obey the gospel, those who do not. Those who obey the gospel still have a kind of judgment, a kind of testing, a kind of you know going into the fire and being revealed as, as quality gold and being refined and that kind of judgment. They're still evaluated, but the judgment for the ungodly who don't obey the gospel is very different. Notice the contrast. If the righteous is scarcely saved, what will become of the ungodly and the sinner? Okay? So guess what is not for the ungodly and the sinner? Salvation. Okay? Romans 5.8, and this is pretty telling. This is what Paul says. He says, God shows his love for us. And people blow past this. While we were still Sinners. That should be a case closed scripture where no one's arguing anymore. Well, I don't know, like we're still sinners. No, we're not. Paul says, while we were, which means past tense and we're not anymore, but while we were sinners, God still loved us enough and Christ loved us enough to die for us. And the argument goes, since he died for a sinner, how much more will he save his own child? That's the argumentation put forth in Romans 5. He's not saying, if God died for you as a sinner, how much more will he save you as a sinner? It's like, what? no. You've gone from sinner into a new reality. First Timothy 1.9, the law is not laid down for the just, but for the lawless disobedient, right? For the ungodly, for the sinners, so guess what it means to be a sinner? Disobedient, lawless, ungodly, unholy, profane. The list goes on and on. But those who are just or justified by God, 
This is not their reality anymore. They're not associated with that. Okay? Verse 15, the saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance. Christ came to save sinners. So once you're saved and you're pulled out of the kingdom of darkness, guess what you're not anymore? You should be pretty straightforward by now. Hebrews 7.26, and, and I'm building this kind of a case because there are some people who believe you can forfeit, walk away from, reject, lose the salvation you have in Christ. I'm not convinced of that biblically. You might bring me to a text. You might bring me to 2 Peter. You can bring me to Romans 11. You can bring me to Galatians and being accursed and cut off. None of that, as I've studied scripture, honestly and objectively, says anything remotely close to the idea that a believer, you can take me to Hebrews 10 and Hebrews 6. I've looked at those passages in depth. What you will not find is clear language of a born again, spirit filled child of God reverting back to the sentence of judgment and wrath. And this is what's so important is there's, there's something attached to, um, for the, I'll say it like this. For the people who live their lives saying this mantra, I'm just a sinner saved by grace, I'm just a sinner saved by grace, what comes associated with that usually is a sense of spiritual insecurity. I'm not saying always, but what I've seen is that that kind of mantra and identifying with that can breed a kind of spiritual insecurity where you actually don't know where you stand with God. And you're not sure if tomorrow you'll revert and give back into the darkness and fall back into wrath and you're not sure if you'll make it into the kingdom. There's a lot of spiritual insecurity that comes attached to identifying yourself as a sinner. And there's also a lot of what? A lot of giving into, justifying, excusing, and even like allowing for sin in your life because I'm just a sinner I'm just, it's like you're not. Do you know what God has made you now? Do you know what you're capable of by his grace? Do you know what his spirit enables you to do? Do you know the kind of life he calls you to because he equips you for it? It's so much different. But when you live beneath what he's called you to, usually that's because you identify with something that is less than what he's made you to be. This is why I'm so passionate about it because there's so many Christians walking around with their head down, not sure if they can confidently look at God because they're, they, I'm just a sinner saved by grace, all glory to you. Yeah, all glory to him, but I actually claim what he's made you to be. Identify with that. That magnifies his grace. Not this false humility or false reality of I'm just a sinner saved by grace. You're not. Hebrews 7.26, it was indeed fitting that we should have such a high priest, holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners. So what does it mean to be separated from sinners? Well, obviously Jesus never sinned, so that's probably a good start. But also it's these words. He's holy. He's innocent. He's unstained. Guess what he makes you? That exact thing. He makes you holy. He sets you apart. He sanctifies you. He treats you and, and, and looks at you and makes you as if you've never sinned because Jesus took it all upon himself. That is what it means to be separated from sinners. That's who Jesus is. And so Jesus is not going to make you a child of God and continue to lump you in the category of sinners. He's going to call you out and separate you from that. 
Not just so that you'd live set apart, but first you have to be set apart. James 5, 4, 8, it says, draw near to God. He will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners. And then the people who will take James out to be, uh, you know, James is always talking directly to a believer. No, it's actually talking to the dispersed exiles, which can include believers, audience in focus. But guess what? There are people, obviously within James' letter, he's talking to people who have yet to believe and trust in the Messiah. There are still sinners that need to have their hearts purified, that need to have their hands cleansed, that are double-minded, that are laughing and making light of sin. And they need to humble themselves and actually admit, I need to draw near to God for cleansing. So notice, to be a sinner is to not have your hearts purified, is to not have your hands cleansed is to not have drawn near to God in humility, is to not be exalted by God through your confession and repentance. These are completely different categories. James chapter 5, verse 20, we'll go on, and I've heard people say, this proves a believer can lose their salvation. He ain't talking about believers in James 5, verse 20. I can tell you that right now. <coughs> He says, my brothers, if anyone among you wanders from the truth, and then what people do is they insert their own understanding straight into that, and they go, what it means to wander from the truth means they once held on to the truth, they once were of the truth, they once belonged to God and actually trusted in the truth. I think you can wander from something you haven't yet grasped. If I'm heading towards something and I'm like, nah, I'm going to start walking away instead and you were close, you had yet to grasp it, I think that's fair. Anyone can easily do that. To wander from something doesn't mean you actually possessed it. I think that's the assumption people read into the text. And someone brings him back, which means, guess what? There are people who wander from the truth, they're in close proximity, they're around Christians, they're in a Christian community, they go to church on Sundays, they might even try attending Bible study, but they have yet to actually trust in Christ. There are people like that all across communities around the world. You might be one of them. You might be in a community that has some of them. I, I don't think it's fair to say every church is full of 100% believers. Really? That's a really dangerous assumption to make. Not that I can ultimately make a judgment call about anyone's soul, but when I preach, I do not assume everyone I'm talking to knows Christ, so I'll preach the gospel. And people can come back to what they wandered from, the church community, their proximity to God, and let him know, watch, whoever brings back a sinner from his wandering will save his soul from death, will cover a multitude of sins. Now, I've... <clears throat> I have yet to do the study I want to on James, looking at the occurrences of sinner and how that idea is unpacked. But I'll tell you right now, after the, after the studies I've done, this is not talking about a believer. Their soul is still in danger of death. They're still under the sentence of death. They're identified as a sinner. And guess what? After me referencing, what, like 50 passages already, we have not yet come across anything remotely close to a believer or someone who used to be a believer ever being identified as a sinner. That's never been the case. We have not come across that. Jude chapter 1 verse 15. 
And I'm going to tell you something right after this. Jude 1.15. The Lord comes with 10,000 of his holy ones. Jude is referencing a prophecy given by Enoch. The Lord comes with 10,000 of his holy ones to execute judgment on all and to convict all the ungodly of all their deeds of ungodliness they've committed. Why? Because they're not convinced they're sinners. They're not convinced they're under condemnation. They're not convinced they need saving. So what Jesus does, oh, he's gonna come back and every sinner is gonna be convinced that yeah, when I look at him, I'm a mess. I'm a failure. I'm a sinner. I'm in darkness and I should have taken the salvation while it was available. That everyone who right now is denying their sinfulness and they think they're morally good without Christ, they will be exposed. They will come to the realization that they're not godly. I promise you. This scripture makes that clear. That they've committed in such an ungodly way and of all the harsh things, ungodly sinners. So guess what it means in this context to be an ungodly sinner? You're not convicted of sin. You're living in ungodliness. And the list goes on and on. The way Jude frames up a sinner is not at all someone who believes or used to believe. That's not even close. So let me tell you this. There are over 70 times that the word sinner is used in the Old and the New Testament, at least in the ESV. Never once does it refer to someone who believes or someone who is righteous or someone who used to be born again or used to belong to God at least in terms of salvation and redemption and justification. The closest thing you can find is in Amos chapter 9, verse 10. This is the only occurrence of the 70 plus occurrences of the word sinner, which speaks of sinners within the nation of Israel. And this isn't even talking about born again believers. This is talking about sinners within or among those who are identified as the people of God. Now, How you view the nation of Israel historically is going to determine how you read this text. If you think that everyone in the physical nation of Israel or the national Israel is saved, then this text will go right over your head. But if you understand that just because you descend from Abraham physically and you're a part of the nation of Israel doesn't mean you are a believer or you're righteous, then you'll understand this text. There are, God calls Israel his people, meaning they are called to be and identify with um, the holiness of God in the earth separate from the rest of the nations. So God claims the nation as his. He goes, you're my possession. You're my inheritance. I'm gonna use you to bring the Messiah. So for them to be called, there, there are two ways to interpret this passage. Either there are sinners within the nation of Israel, which it's, fair to say the nation of Israel God says hey you're my people Um, but I think that's fundamentally different than being a born again child uh, adopted into his family I think there is a theological distinction between the way that national Israel uh, was the people of God versus the way uh, believers in the Messiah are children of God Um, So that's one way to look at this. The main way I look at this is that there are sinners among 
those who are actually the people of God. So just because national Israel as a whole throughout its history gets a bad rap doesn't mean that everyone was a sinner. There's always a remnant. There's always a remnant. So there are some within national Israel who God says, you know what? You are mine. Um, <clears throat> you are my, I identify you as my own. And there are sinners among them, just as James talks about there being sinners um, among the Christian communities around the world. There are sinners in churches all around the world and congregations and Bible studies. Just because you attend those things and claim to belong to God doesn't mean you actually believe. I think we know that. But either way, disaster is and sword and death, that's what the sinners get. So that's as close as you get, but nowhere near uh, what you'd actually need to say that a believer can revert to a sinner or a believer can be a sinner. So let me say it like this. If you haven't seen already, throughout all the texts I've shown you, a sinner is not, N-O-T, not, just someone who sins. A sinner, as we've seen, is someone who has a condition or a deep spiritual disease called sin, plaguing their soul and their whole nature. So their very nature is one of sin, okay? They're considered unrighteous, unbelieving, uh, rejected, degenerate, uh, unbelieving, ungodly, rejecting God and His ways. All of those different descriptions are what give us a picture of what it means to be a sinner. You can't say you're a sinner and then forget about all those other descriptions. All those other descriptions form the mosaic for us of what a sinner is. So a sinner is someone who is, their very nature is one of sin. They reject God and his ways. They don't believe. They don't follow. They don't, his ways aren't their own. <clears throat> they're unrighteous. They're unbelieving. They're ungodly. All that. This is, a sinner is not someone um, who, you know, stumbles into a moment of sin or stumbles into a, a, a moment of failure. This is not a person being identified with a momentary failure or sin as if like, I'm a Christian now and then I tell a lie later and now I am a sinner. No, what I am is someone who actually messed up <clears throat> but that mess up, that failure, praise God, is atoned for, not so I can continue doing it, but precisely because the kindness of God leads me to repentance so I'd live different. I'm called to live holy. I'm called to live out the laws and the ways of God as his children. So even in 1 Corinthians, if you read about the mess that Corinth was, read about 1 Corinthians. Those Christians and that community was just out of out of out of order. And even in 1 Corinthians, the carnal Christians of Corinth, they're not called sinners. They're called carnal believers. And, and some people will take this and say, see, you can live in sin. It's like, actually, I think the very heart of a believer and the fact that you have a new nature and a new heart and a new identity and a new essence is that you will not want to do that. If you look at the grace of God and go, hey, that's my excuse to live in sin now, I, I, I would struggle to believe that you really have a new regenerate heart like Hebrews 8 and Deuteronomy and Jeremiah talk about. That doesn't mean you'll never struggle with or give in to the desires and passions of your flesh, but you're not identified with that. So 
Point number one, born-again believers are not sinners. So the question becomes, well, what are we? You are forgiven. You are righteous. There's a difference between, again, giving into sin and then being an actual sinner, where that's your nature, that's your essence. Um, huge difference. Please don't spam the chat. You'll get silenced real fast. <coughs> you can share your thoughts, but if you spam, you out. It's just ridiculous. Um, number two you need to understand is that born-again believers are forgiven. Okay? Now, when I say that, you all have an idea of what that means. But now, you can detach the sinner aspect from it. Okay? What's funny is people will accuse me of giving the truth in this way. And they'll say, you're promoting sin. You're encouraging sin. I actually, that's quite the opposite, actually. I think holiness and righteous living and obedience and love and purity are going to be the result of knowing who you really are. So if you don't know who you are, then you'll continue falling into what you think is just a product of, you know, that's just who I am. Now I am my sin. But if you go, oh, I'm not a sinner, you're now called to a higher level. You realize you're compatible for that higher level. You're, you're fitted to do more of what God's called you to do. Well, then you'll rise to that level and you won't live beneath what God has called you and enabled you to be. So watch this. When I say that you are forgiven, okay, <clears throat> usually what we think of is the act of God saying, I forgive you, okay? We think about the action of God forgiving us. I have been forgiven. Pause. This is not just talking about the action of God forgiving me. That's the key. That's the center of it for sure. But what this means is the core of who you are, your very nature and essence is someone who is forgiven. Just like I am a male or I am 30 years old or I am a father or I am a husband, right? I'm speaking to who I am. Who you are is a forgiven one. Because he has forgiven you. So you can use the Old Testament language of clean, unclean, and, and profane versus holy and, and the common. You can use that language if you want. It's easier to just bypass all that and use modern terminology that actually helps people understand you are cleansed of... Let me show you with the scripture because I know people are going to tune out and go, ah, I knew he's going to bring in one saved, always saved. But this is not the point of this message. The point is you are forgiven the implications are eternal security is a very, very biblical doctrine. Not the way the Calvinist views it. If you're a Calvinist, it's fine. I love you. I'm glad you're here. But I don't hold to that. <clears throat> so let me show you something. There are a lot of believers who go, I have been forgiven, but they don't believe they're forgiven of their sin, past, present, future. They think when I come to God and I, you know, I'm a sinner, I'm, I'm, I'm wicked, I'm unrighteous, and I go, Lord, save me. The first time I believe in Jesus, they think that God is only forgiving them of the sin they've done up to that point. 
And then all the sin they do past that point, it's on them to continue confessing and continue repenting. And if I don't, then those sins will actually stain my soul and God will see me for my sin. Let me show you why that is a destructive and unbiblical and false idea. When God cleanses through the atoning work of his son, when God cleanses by his spirit, when God cleanses through the regeneration process and you being born again in the blood of his son, when he cleanses, <laughs> he does not cleanse up to a certain point. 1 John 1, 7 through 9, and I have 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, 10, 10 very clear very clear scriptures that make it obvious we've been cleansed of all sin. And if that is the case, the logical conclusion is that if I currently now am forgiven of all sin, then it cannot be true that there's potential in the future for God to hold any sin against me and condemn me. Meaning, the fact that you've been forgiven of all sin negates the idea that a born-again child can actually revert back to being a sinner or lose their salvation or walk away from it or reject it. This flies in the face of it. You cannot be both forgiven of all sin now as a promise and then somehow revert back to, well, now God holds me under condemnation and I'm condemned for my sin. You have to choose one. You're either forgiven and there's potential in the future for some sin not to be forgiven of, or you are forgiven now of all sin, which means there's no potential in the future for any sin to stain your soul or you know affect the way God sees you. First John 1, 7 through 9. Let's start here. We are cleansed of all sin. If we walk in the light as He is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. Now, people will often view this as a conditional, see if you walk in obedience. Walking in the light, contextually here, means confessing and turning from sin to receive salvation. So this is talking about a salvation experience. This is not talking about me <clears throat> doing a certain amount of holy works and obedience to stay in the light. Of course, that's going to be the product of me being cleansed. But here, walking in the light means I'm coming out of the darkness to confess my sin to God, admit I can't do anything about it and I'm not good, and say, God, I need you to make me righteous through your leave, and boom, he makes you this. If you have fellowship with one another and you're in the light, you know what's really cool is the blood of Jesus cleanses us, read the text, from all sin. Now, you can do mental gymnastics and try and get around this and go, well, what he means is all sin up to that point. Well, technically, from the vantage point of the cross, all my sin was future-oriented. All my sin was in the future from the vantage point of the cross. So you're saying that forgiveness and cleansing goes up to a certain point in the future and then stops. It's ridiculous. I think we'd all agree that's kind of weird. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. John will consistently use this idea 
of walking in the light, okay, as first confessing, repenting of sin. Secondly, it is to live in the light, walk in the light, live in the truth, walk in the laws of God, live righteous, right? But by no means is our forgiveness conditioned upon me living perfectly. That's not a conclusion you can draw from this text. (coughs) Let's keep reading. If we confess our sins, okay, he is faithful and he is just to forgive us of our sins and cleanse us. Look at the qualifying word once again that John uses from all unrighteousness. So in 1 John chapter 1, you have two individuals. The person who doesn't admit sin or they excuse sin or they think they're morally good without Christ and they don't confess or repent of their sin and they're in unrighteousness. The second person is someone who goes, you know what, I want fellowship with God. I want to be in the light. I confess sin. And now, boom, they're made righteous. Okay, Those are the two categories in 1 John chapter 1. So obviously, what we have is someone confessing And the blood of Jesus coming in to cleanse of all sin and all unrighteousness. Do you know what the word all means in the Greek? It means all. (laughs) It means all. My little children, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. So watch how John qualifies what he says. It's as if someone will read this and go, ah, yes, all sin is covered. I can get away with it. If you think like that, know this. John's saying, what I'm writing to you should encourage holiness. You should read that and holiness and righteousness and obedience should result from that. I'm writing this precisely so that you will not sin. But watch, if anyone does, we have an advocate. Jesus Christ, the righteous. He's the propitiation for our sins and not for ours only. This is, I think, where Calvinism begins to fall apart. Limited atonement, at least from the common Calvinistic perspective, mainstream Calvinism will say that technically the cross only deals with the sin of those who trust in the Messiah. I know what they're saying, but they take it to an unhealthy extreme, which is to say that, well, technically the cross is only for those who believe. No, I think it only applies to those who believe, but it's for everyone. It says also for the sins of the whole world. So notice, if you want to get clarity on what John's saying, he takes it a step further. He goes, you've been cleansed of all sin. And you're like, oh, not all sin. He's like, no, all righteousness. And you're like, well, what if I sin? You have an advocate because he's righteous for you. Well, not like, all sin, let me make it so clear that no one will deny this. Jesus' atonement is something that deals with the sins of the whole world. Now, that doesn't mean that it benefits the whole world, but it's available to the whole world. So technically, all the sins of humanity, all human evil in the flesh of Jesus was dealt with, including those who will never believe. It's, it's available, it's possible, But if they reject it, it doesn't benefit them. That's the simplest way to make sense of that. Let me take you to Ephesians 1.7. Did he say all sin or did I make that up? 
He said all sin, all unrighteousness, the sins of the whole world. Ephesians 1, 7 says, look, in him we have redemption. Through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses. Now watch, what he's about to do is tell you the extent of God's forgiveness, okay? According to the riches of his grace. Meaning, guess what? The forgiveness of God will go as far as the grace of God goes. So ask yourself this, biblically, is God's grace, does it cap? Does it, is there a limit on the grace of God for those who believe in the Messiah? Or is His grace endless and limitless and infinite for those who you know, trust in Him for salvation? If you say it's endless, then since that's the measuring stick of God's forgiveness, then you have endless forgiveness for those who actually take hold of it and ask for it. There's no way to get around it. The, 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 um, it's almost as if uh, Paul is saying, let me, let me measure the forgiveness of God for you. Um, it's as far as God's grace. God's grace is the measuring stick. And you're like, well, God's grace can't really be capped. Uh, for those who trust in him, it's endless grace. That's the point of it. And then Paul would go, well, since his forgiveness is according to the riches of his grace, there you go. <clears throat> now, this is just, we haven't even turned the heat up at all. This is just us getting started. Romans 4, 7 through 8. I love this passage, man. Here's what I'm going to do, actually. Before we jump into this, before you see this for yourself, I'm going to take a quick break. Um, I got to go pee. If you've not already done this, go to AboveReproachMinistry.com. We have a bunch of free resources that are made available to anyone around the world, completely free and accessible to anyone who wants to learn how to read the Bible. We have free online Bible study courses that will teach you how to read the Bible. We have free study devotionals that walk you through specific patterns and keywords in the book of Ephesians. We have free Bible study worksheets. We have Bible study workshops. We have all this free content because of generous supporters like you guys. And if you want to support this ministry, we're teaching people how to read the Bible so they can live and teach the Bible themselves. And there are a bunch of ways to donate. You can go to AboveReproachMinistry.com slash donate. You can give through debit or credit card. You can send a check to P.O. Box 338, uh, Green Cove Springs. You can give through PayPal, Cash App, Venmo, Patreon. And then you can also get some church merch. If you've not already grabbed some church merch, I would recommend you do that so you can represent Jesus on your body. And all the proceeds go right back into this content so that we can reach more people and equip people to, you know, live and teach the Bible themselves. And if you didn't know this, I actually have a book. I've published a book. It's called Fruitful. And the point of this book is to be a resource to the church to teach people um, the essential keys for the most abundant Christian life this side of heaven. And so in this book, what I do is I, I outline the gospel absolutely clearly <laughs> so you can actually know what the foundational truth is. And then from there, we discover what our purpose is, what our process is, and what our position is now in Christ. So if you are a new believer, or if you're a believer that really wants to understand what I believe are the essential key truths that a lot of people don't understand in the church, 
I would grab a copy. And if you haven't already joined our online church, get in that online church. We have a lot of cool stuff happening, events every single day pretty much. Uh, We're in there praying and fellowshipping and gathering and growing together as a community. And the last thing is this. If you haven't already checked out our podcast, uh, we have podcasts on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and everywhere else where you can get a podcast. And pretty much all the content on YouTube, the live streams, what we do is we um, make that into podcast format so you guys can just listen on the go. So go check that out if you have not already. And let's get back to the video. (sighs) Got me mid-drink. All right, Romans chapter... (laughs) That's my dad in the background. You want to see his face one day? All right, Romans chapter 4. This is... A beautiful passage. Um, It says, Just as David speaks of the blessing of the one to whom God counts righteousness apart from works, and he's used Abraham as a key figure in this argument, which is that God gives righteousness as a free gift. There's a transaction that takes place. It's as if the currency we offer is faith. Um, And then God will exchange that faith in for righteousness, just like he did for Abraham. So Abraham was given righteousness in exchange for the faith he had. And David also speaks about that, right? And he's quoting here Psalm 32. It says, Blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven. I love this. Uh, Someone who is forgiven is what it means to be blessed. Um, So for those of you that are like, I just don't feel blessed, are you forgiven? Are all your lawless deeds, all the sins, all the failures, all the mistakes throughout your life, are they all forgiven? You are blessed. That's what it means to be blessed. It's not the only thing, but I think that's pretty essential. Blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven, whose sins are covered. And this is not God hiding sin, like, we don't want to talk about that. Keep the skeletons in the closet. You're my child now. This is God covering, atoning for um, dealing with, handling all those different ways of saying, this is not God covering. It goes back to the Levitical system and the language used of um, how God would cover the sins of his people. But also blessed is the man against, watch this, for David, Psalm 32, prophetically and currently in his life, he understands the forgiveness of God. It's that your lawless deeds are forgiven. Your sins are covered. And he doesn't qualify how many sins or what sins, the sins I'm aware of, the sins I'm really sorry for, the sins of my past, the sins in my future that I'm anticipating. He doesn't qualify that. He just says sin in general, covered and forgiven, but also this man who has their sins forgiven, that man is blessed because the Lord will not count his sin. Okay, this is God the way that God forgives, and the argument in Romans 4 is that to be righteous, to be forgiven, is to say God will not count his sin, your sin against you. Um, Now some will say, well, that's talking about the sin he's forgiven of that he won't count against you, but there's still the opportunity in the future God might hold sin against you and count that against you. If that's true, then Hebrews 8 is a wash. Let's go to Hebrews 8. It says, talking about the first and second covenant, I've gone through this a lot. 
talking about the days that are coming. There's a new covenant in place through the Messiah. The greater high priest mediates that, puts it in place, inaugurates it in blood. And now part of this covenant is this in verse 10. This is the covenant that he makes with the house of Israel. Technically, people that don't want Gentiles, that don't want to identify as the house of Israel, as, um, I guess, the people of God, this verse kind of flies in the face of that. <clears throat> we are grafted into Israel, not nationally, um, but spiritual Israel. Romans 9 makes that clear. And so we are uh, together, just like in the Old Testament, there were strangers and foreigners and, and uh, you know, other people from other nations that could come under uh, the banner of the God of Israel and identify with, with Israel as a nation. Well, we are now grafted into spiritual Israel. And so this covenant applies to us. But it says, I will put my laws in their minds. I will write them on their hearts. I will be their God and they shall be my people. They shall not teach each one his neighbor. Know the Lord, right? Because they can all know me, he says, from the least of them to the greatest. So notice what is part of this new covenant. He says, I will be merciful toward their iniquities. Okay. What does that mean? What does it mean for God to be merciful toward our iniquities? He says, I will remember their sins no more. So, what we have here is, this is not God uh, for, forgetting in the sense that, ah, oh, my memory escapes me. Let me think. This is God choosing not to hold sin against us. And in that sense, it becomes a, I don't remember it anymore because I've chosen not to let that bear any influence on how I treat you or see you. This is God throwing our sea, uh, our, our sin into the sea of forgetfulness. This is God taking sin uh, from us as far as the east is from the west and they never touch. This is the concept of forgiveness in the new covenant. And this is, I, I understand, like fundamentally different from the way an Israelite would have received uh, forgiveness through the Levitical system and animal sacrifices because that only touched intentional sin, or rather unintentional sin. Uh, the high-handed, rebellious, kind of hearted, intentional sin wasn't covered under that animal sacrificial system. So there was a kind of moral failure or wickedness that it didn't cover. That's why Jesus steps in and he goes, I can cover that. I can cover all sin. And so this is God saying, I will remember their sins no more. So pause. If God ever remembers, let's just say I'm a believer right now. Let's just say you believe I can forfeit my salvation as a believer. <coughs> right now I'm born again. I have a new nature, a new heart, a new identity. I'm a child of God. I've been regenerated. I have a new life. I'm a new creation. But, right, but, Let's just say I, in, in what you qualify as walking away from salvation, let's say I do that. Let's say I walk away. And now I'm under the sentence of death again. I'm under the wrath of God again. I'm under condemnation again. I'm going to be separated from God again. My sin separates me because I've apostatized, right? <clears throat> well, now this new covenant promise, is, it's, it's been voided because God does remember my sins. And he qualifies this promise with no more. Like to say, 
that there's no potential in the future, no more for sin to be remembered by me and hold it against you. That's not a possibility. So in my understanding, this does negate the possibility of a born-again child of God to ever come under the wrath of God again by whatever you qualify as apostatizing because God would have to remember our sins again when he says in this promise, I will not remember your sins anymore. Which the no more is an indefinite statement into the future, I would say, rather than just a only for now. But if you do this, I'll remember them again. There's no room for that. Um, so, I mean, so far we've seen that you're cleansed of all sin. It's, it's endless grace. God won't count his, your sin against you. He won't remember your sin no more. I mean, the list goes on and on. What does it mean to be forgiven? It means that there's no possibility biblically um, for, you know, a true born-again believer to ever have their sins held against them again because Christ paid for all sin. Now, that doesn't mean there won't be consequences in this life for sin, and that doesn't mean you should sin. We're called to live holy and righteous and fear the Lord. Hebrews 7, let me take you here. When you understand the nature of the sacrifice of Jesus, uh, you can understand the forgiveness that's offered through that better. So the former priests were many in number because they kept dying. <laughs> so another priest would have to pick up the mantle. Another high priest would pick up the mantle. And that one would die off. Another one just continued endlessly. But speaking of Jesus, he holds his priesthood permanently because he continues forever. Watch. Consequently. Watch. Consequently. In other words, the result of Jesus holding his priesthood permanently and being a forever eternal high priest in our place means this. Meaning this is now true because he's an eternal high priest. He's able to save to the uttermost. Those who draw near to God through him since he always lives to make intercession for them. So some would take this to say because Jesus lives forever, um, he'll be your advocate or your high priest if you don't apostatize or if you don't, whatever you qualify as that. I don't, I don't really know what people mean when they say that because <clears throat> everyone seems to qualify that a little differently. But how I read this is this, because remember, the, the eternal, never-ending priesthood of Jesus is the foundation of what he's about to say in verse 25, meaning uh, never-ending and eternal are going to be qualities of what results from his priesthood. Watch. Consequently, he's able to save to the uttermost. The language that the author of Hebrews uses, I'm convinced it's Paul, but whatever, is that the, the salvation offered or the salvation that's, that's now given by the eternal, never-ending, forever high priest is a salvation that is to the uttermost meaning it can't be any more of a salvation. So think about it like this. If there are degrees of salvation, and for those of you that believe you can uh, forfeit your salvation after being a child of God, then you would say that there's um, the salvation we have is only to the degree that I continue in it. 
that would leave uh, the possibility for, in our minds, a better salvation that God didn't accomplish, which is a salvation that actually secures indefinitely and forever those who take refuge in the Son. Meaning, if, if the salvation God offers through His Son now is one that can be forfeited, well, I can envision with my own mind a salvation that's better than that, which is one that can't be forfeited. Now, I'm not saying to put you know your understanding above the Scriptures. What I'm saying is there's almost layers of betterment to it, but the uttermost means it's the top level, best possible scenario of salvation. There's no better version. It's to the uttermost, to the fullest extent. Uh, to Completion is a good word. Perfection is a good word. But note, the salvation offered, it connects to the eternal priesthood of Jesus, meaning the salvation is complete, it's perfect, it's forever, it's eternal, because it's based on the one who doesn't change, the one who is eternal, and the one who holds his priesthood securely forever, and no one can change that. Which means the, the salvation that results from that, the uttermost salvation, is a complete, all-inclusive, perfect salvation. It's to the fullest extent. It's to the fullest extent. And I will read the comments after this, so, so know that. For those that are leaving comments about uh, you know, losing salvation, I want to address that, so please hang around so we can talk through that, because I don't want to just leave you guys hanging. Um, I do want to address that, but let me continue proving through the scriptures that, and this is not to be an eternal security message, but part of forgiveness means touching on the nature of it. Hebrews 9, 11 through 14, it says, when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater, more perfect tent, not made with hands, not of this creation, he entered once for all. I think that's speaking of his, his, his uh, glorified, resurrected body, that which is imma not immaterial, but um, that which is beyond this world. He entered once and for all into the holy places. So where did Jesus go? To the right hand of the Father, into the truest holy place, not with animal blood, but by means of his own blood. Now watch the kind of redemption or salvation his blood secures. It's an eternal one. Notice the language used. He secured it. So I, I want to say it like this. <clears throat> Your salvation is secured by the blood of Jesus. That doesn't just mean it's guaranteed to those who believe. Like, if I believe, he really will give it to me. What that means is, those who have it, his blood secures it. The way you would secure anything and fasten it and make sure it won't fall out of your truck while you're driving on the highway. That's our salvation. He's secured it, tied it down, because it's an eternal salvation and redemption. That language, the author of Hebrews didn't have to use that. He could have just said, yeah, the blood of Jesus, make sure you're saved and he guarantees if you believe you'll get it. He goes a step beyond that. And watch, verse 13, if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer, if you don't understand the Levitical system, this goes right over your head. If the ashes of a heifer sanctify essentially the body and <clears throat> bodily, physical impurity, 
ceremonially, how much more with the blood of Christ, who through the, look at the word again, eternal spirit, offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God. He's the mediator of a new covenant. So those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance. Eternal uh, means um, cannot be negated, cannot be voided, cannot be, because uh, it continues indefinitely forever. <coughs> So, what Jesus offers and gives and what you have if you believe is what's called an eternal redemption. Not just because he holds an eternal priesthood, but because he entered through the eternal spirit. That's why we have an eternal inheritance promised. And we receive that. Let's go on. Because this is what it means for you to be forgiven. I don't want you having a watered down... uh, misunderstanding of what it means to be forgiven where you're left with an open-ended, I don't know if I'll stay forgiven or I might lose it or I might forfeit it or I'm scared. (coughs) Okay. I don't want you guys to walk in shame and condemnation or identify with sin or justify sin. There are two extremes here when you don't understand who you are. Hebrews 9.23, it says, thus it was necessary Uh, for the copies of the heavenly things. That's talking about the physical tabernacle and all the stuff to be purified with these rites, but the heavenly things to be purified with better sacrifices. Christ has entered not into holy places made with hands, meaning he entered into what is not of this creation. Therefore, what's required to enter into that is a body that's compatible for that. So the body has to be glorified, resurrected from the dead, you know, out beyond this this created world. And he does that. And he goes into heaven itself now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. Nor was it to offer himself repeatedly like the other high priest. Then he would have to suffer repeatedly since the foundation of the world. But as it is, he's appeared once for all. Now we understand that the the atonement of Jesus is a once-for-all event, meaning he did it once, he doesn't have to do it again. It covers all human evil. At the end of ages, to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. This once-for-all language means that he really did cover all possible human evil that has ever existed. Um including those who will never believe it's available. He's put away sin from you. You need to learn how to like see that when you look in the mirror. He's put away your sin. He's covered it. He's paid for it. Um, His flesh actually embodied that evil so that it could be legally, justly penalized in our place. He died in our place. All like your sin is gone. It's not it doesn't at all influence the way God sees or treats you as a child of God. There is uh, discipline, there is chastening, but it's not condemnation. So when I say that he doesn't treat you according to your sin, meaning he mercifully doesn't condemn you when you deserve to be. Um, 
That's what it means to be forgiven. Hebrews 10 um, talks about the continued once. You know what? Let me, let me do this. Because I don't know how many more scriptures you need to be convinced that the forgiveness offered through Jesus and the redemption offered through Jesus is eternal and forever and perfect and complete and secured. I don't know what else to do for you. Hebrews 10, though, is the last passage we can look at. Um, By that will, we have been sanctified. We talked about sanctification in the last episode through the offering of the body of Jesus once for all. So if you didn't like the last verse, and you're like, well, just because he deals with sin once for all doesn't mean I'm forgiven once for all. I think you're starting to get more reason to believe that. Actually, you've been sanctified once and for all. For all time, uh, for all in your indefinite future, for all your sins has been paid for, once and for all means um, there's no reason to have a second. There's no better version I'm trying to think of all the ways I can explain dimensions of this once-for-all language. Because to be set apart, sanctified, purified, cleansed, washed, once and for all means this. There's no need for a second washing or sanctification or purification. But if someone goes, I don't know, you can forfeit your salvation or apostatize. Well, then there is the possibility or the need for a second. And this wasn't a once-for-all. This was a once for up to the point I apostatized, and now I need a second. And Hebrews 10, Hebrews 6, I think touch on a kind of, um, I won't get on that train actually right now. Every priest stands daily at his service offering repeatedly the same sacrifices. Notice the contrast between the repetitive nature of the Levitical system versus the once-for-all sacrifice of Jesus, it's sufficient. Ultimately, this becomes an, um, I hate to say it, but some of you are going to find offense at this statement, but ultimately this, this whole conversation of, well, can you forfeit, can you walk away, can you reject, it really does become a question of Jesus' sufficiency and how valuable he is. It, it really calls into question his capability um, when you look at the promises he puts forth or his sufficiency or his value to only pay for sins up to a point and then you lost it. And it really does call into question his value and sufficiency. So listen, he's talking about uh, sacrifices in the Old Testament that could never take away sins. Notice the language, it could never do it. But when Christ offered for all time, there's that language again, once for all, for all time, a single sacrifice. He sat down at the right hand of God because he's done, waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. For by a single offering, by a single offering, listen to the language, he's perfected for all time. The kind of perfection Jesus offers through those who believe, the kind of perfection you have right now through faith in Jesus is a perfection that lasts for all time. 
if you could walk away, forfeit, reject, whatever you want to call it, from your salvation, well, then you have, no, I was perfected up to a point, but not for all time. And it would negate this promise. It would negate this statement. You really have been perfected and forgiven and sanctified and redeemed for all. It covers all potential time in your future. So as we end, know this, believers are actually not sinners. Stop identifying yourself as just a sinner saved by grace. You can say, I am saved by grace and I used to be a sinner. Or I used to be a sinner and that sinner was saved by grace and now I am only the saved by grace part. Born again believers are forgiven. Now you know what it means to be forgiven of all sin endlessly. His grace is sufficient. It covers all. Um, But the last point is this. Born again believers, you are righteous Remember how I contrasted in the very beginning when I laid the foundation, I said, sinners are contrasted with the righteous every time. You'll never see the sinners and righteous lumped into the same category because they're fundamentally different people, different realities, different heart postures, different standings with God, different eternal destinations. Sinner and righteous person are on polar opposite sides of the spectrum. They could not be more different. So you are either a sinner or you are righteous. You are not both. There's no neutral gray area. It, so Matthew chapter 3, verse 15. Here's how you can be righteous. Let's start with what Jesus does. He tells John that he's going to fulfill all righteousness. And the water baptism of John includes that. Or it includes the water baptism of John. Romans 8, verse 3 and 4. God has done what the law weakened by the flesh. And yes, the law was weak by the flesh. Could not do. By sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin. Watch. He actually condemned sin itself. Human evil. Wickedness, depravity in the flesh of Christ. So that... Now, the righteous requirement of the law is fulfilled in us. Who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. So to be righteous, to meet the standard of God through faith in Jesus, is to live in such a way where the spirit of God leads your life, not your flesh. So just a a time for introspection does your life predominantly get led by the flesh or the spirit? It's really important. So when it says we, we've met the law, since Jesus fulfilled all righteousness, and then he gives us that on a silver platter, and he goes, look, if you trust in me, it'll be as if you've met the righteous requirement of the law too, because I'm giving you my perfection. That also means through your life, you'll see progressive and growing obedience to the law so that you begin to not meet the law for righteousness but you begin to meet the law with your life with your way of life because you're righteous now this is where we get into what it means that you are righteous um 
No longer say you're a sinner saved by grace, man. I understand the sentiment. I understand the humility you're trying to promote. It says, for our sake, he made him to be sin. Jesus, we saw in Romans chapter 8, in his flesh, human evil actually took up residency, if you want to say it like that, and was condemned in our place. And so since he knew no sin, but he became sin on the cross, here's what happens. Now, in him, we become the righteousness of God. People who think you can um, walk away from, forfeit, reject your salvation really don't understand what it means to be the righteousness of God. That's something worth meditating on. That's something worth really praying through and thinking about and studying all throughout Scripture. He doesn't just say you are righteous. Like, hey, you are... Because what it means to be righteous is you are declared right. You have right standing with God. He sees you as being upright and you can actually stand in the judgment in His presence rather than being condemned with sinners. You're declared righteous. Why? Because Christ makes you righteous, but beyond that, there's a level two to this. You're not just righteous generally according to the law. <coughs> if I can say it like this, <coughs> I know some of you Torah observers were gonna we're gonna not like this. But it's as if the very righteousness we've received um, <coughs> transcends even just what you see required in the law. What I mean by that is the law lays out the character and the heart of God and the standard for his people. Like if you want to be perfect, here's the righteous requirement. But it's as if God doesn't just give us a righteousness that just meets that. He gives us his very righteousness. Now, of course, the law of God is not something he's subject to. It's it's an extension of who he is. The law of God is actually, um, if I can say it for lack of better words, it's... um, the law of God is a revelation to us of who God is. So when you see these different laws put in place, it's revealing to you different dimensions. In other words, it's, it's not that God, some people think, well, God has to do what he puts in place, so he's limited. No, it's actually that the law shows you who God is and who you need to be to be righteous in his sight, and you can't be that. So God will actually give you his own righteousness. This is why when... Um, and I want you to think about this. You and I have not just been restored to the place where Adam and Eve fell. So if I can use an analogy, um, I don't know. I don't have anything that I can workably think through. But let's just say right here is where Adam and Eve fell from, right? This is where God made them good. Uh, cultivate, bear my image in the earth, rule the earth under my authority. Adam and Eve were made in that garden to be in the presence of God. That's where they were. But they fell from that. Bummer. What Jesus does is he doesn't just restore us to where they fell from. He actually restores us to a place that is even higher than that. What I mean by that is we don't just um, uh, gain back our right to rule and our standing with the Father and the presence of God and, and, and life eternal. We're not just restored to that. 
what Jesus gives us now is something that is secured. Like, do you understand? Adam and Eve had potential to lose what they had. Yeah, you and I do not. There's no potential to lose what Christ secures or, or walk away from or forfeit once you have it and you are, because a lot of people think about, well, you might forfeit your salvation. Here's my cream for my knee that's injured right now. But this is your salvation. And people are like, well, you can walk away from that and drop it. But what they're not thinking about is that you are submersed into Christ. You are immersed into Christ. You are in him positionally. Where he is, you are. You're seated in him. You're spiritually seated in Christ. So when we talk about, well, can you walk away from your salvation? What we're focusing on is the salvation part. We're not thinking about our location in Christ. You are in him. He secures you. He actually locks you into place, not against your free will, but in consistent, you know, consistently aligned with your free will. You want to be in him. So you're asking, Lord, save me. Put me in your son. Make me righteous. And he does. And he does. So you and I have come to a place where it's, it's okay to say, yeah, Christ has made me the righteousness of God. That's a very different statement than I'm just a sinner saved by grace. You are the righteousness of God. And when you say it out loud, you realize the high calling on your life. When you say I'm just a sinner saved by grace, you lower the bar and you allow for mistakes and say, oh, I'm just a sinner. You're not. But if you say I'm the righteousness of God, you know how high that bar is? Not that you're trying to like reach it to stay there, but because you are there. He's covered you in righteousness, and now you can live it out. It, it, it sets a different trajectory for your life when you start repeating daily, I'm the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus. He's covered me. In his righteousness, Jesus has covered me. He's given me his robe. Think about the parable of the, the feast. Remember, the king throws a wedding feast. You want to come? I've provided garments. The people, someone finds their way in, and at least in a surface, shallow kind of way, they find their way in, and they're not wearing the king's wedding garments, which means they rejected the king's wedding garments. They're kicked out because they don't belong. They're not fitted for or compatible for the presence of the king. That's symbolic of the righteousness Jesus gives you. You're either clothed in the righteousness of God or you're a sinner, wicked, depraved, separated, ungodly, and under death. So if you're in Christ, you are righteous but you're also the righteousness of God to like make that statement more shocking. Romans 5.19, it says, as by the one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners. Remember Adam and Eve, they, all they could produce from there on out after the fall were more sinners. But what Jesus can produce symbolically through his obedience is many who are made righteous. So this is not you gaining righteousness. This is not you um, achieving, winning, uh, working for, or even maintaining righteousness in the sight of God. I guess it's been hours. Like, the whole point of the new covenant is that it solves the problem of the human heart and the human condition. When you misunderstand that, of course you're going to have these doctrines that make you think, 
I can forfeit and walk away from it. You need to read Hebrews 8. Read Hebrews 8 through 10. And then note down all the improvements God makes in the new versus the old. What's the improvements? The human heart, a new nature, a new standing, but also, I think very clearly in Hebrews 8, we have laid out for us the issue with the old is that people didn't want to do it. The issue with the old is that people didn't want to do the ways of God. In fact, let me pull up Hebrews 8 for you. They didn't continue in his covenant. Part of the problem with the old is the lack of continuing. So Hebrews 8 will go on to make it clear that what's improved in the new is that the the continuing is guaranteed. So when people go, well, what what if a Christian walks away from rejects, forfeits? I say it like this. God has reformatted people when you come to faith. He's reformatted you so that you will not want to be without him. That's why you have a new heart and a new nature and a new, all this. That's why when I look at people who indefinitely continue in rebellion and unbelief and wickedness, if they die in that condition indefinitely, you know, cursing God and rejecting Jesus and the gospel, then there's something deeper going on there because God actually graciously uh, aids our human uh, inability, aids us by hey, saying, hey, in the new covenant, I'll make sure you continue. I'll ensure you continue to the end. Now you have all these warnings in the New Testament all about continuing and continuing and continuing. <clears throat> People use that to say, <clears throat> see a believer can choose not to continue. I don't think so. I think the warnings are there just to stir on and motivate and actually align you and your heart continually daily with what the Spirit is going to do in your life. So I do believe that a born-again believer won't want to be without God. I do believe that God will secure and enable them to continue to the end. You are made righteous. Um, And now, if you go to Ephesians chapter 4, verse 24, it says, to put on the new self so you are righteous you are forgiven. Go live like it. Created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. So guess what God does? He gives you a new life, a new reality, a new nature that is in his likeness, righteous and holy. <clears throat> Therefore, you and I, in Christ, we are righteous and we are holy. Now go and live like it. You are that. Now go put that on daily. Put on Christ. Live up to the calling on your life. Live a life that's worthy of the gospel. Pursue holiness. Grow in the fear of the Lord. Understand how holy he is. Ephesians chapter 6 verse 14. It says, stand therefore, having 
fastened on the belt of truth, having put on the breastplate of righteousness. So having put on, what it means to stand in the midst of spiritual warfare is what? To actually fasten that belt of truth, to put on the righteousness that's yours, to live like it, to put on the shoes of really the gospel of peace. It's not the shoes of peace. To put on the shield of faith, to essentially all that's available and all that's true of Christ and true of you, wear it, put it on, right? <clears throat> so to go back to my main point, um, which is that believers are not sinners anymore. You are forgiven. You are righteous. That's your eternal reality conditioned upon Jesus being the eternal perfect uh, high priest that's completed everything for us what it means and we can talk about the the whole and the reason I said there are warnings in the New Testament I misspoke there are people that look at that <clears throat> the statements given by the apostles as warnings to not apostatize or not forfeit whatever it may be um, but rather than a warning uh, when I read the New Testament, that's more of an encouragement. So it's not uh, keep running or you'll miss out on heaven. It's, hey, keep running because he's enabled you to do so. So if I misspoke, that's my fault. I'm not at all minimizing warnings in the New Testament. I'm saying I don't see those as warnings to not forfeit or walk away from your salvation because I don't think that's even a potential, uh, even a possibility. What I do believe is as long as you believe, you are secure. And that's as simple as you can state it. You are forgiven. You are righteous. Um, <clears throat> and there are calls to, what, abide, continue. But by no means are those conditions for, um, Paul did not say he could be disqualified, but that's, that's if you'd like to talk about that, <coughs> we could talk about that later. But I lost my train of thought because y'all distract me in the chat. Um, this was not meant to. It ended up being, but I'll say from the original uh, outline of the message, this was not meant to be an eternal security message as much as it is you are forgiven, you are righteous. But part of that Christian identity comes this dimension um, of it is secure, it is indefinite, uh, it is eternally maintained by God's grace and not your efforts and God calls you to put effort God calls you to partner with him God calls you to abide and do and whatever it may be but by no means are is your salvation conditioned upon those things so when God calls or commands children of God to do stuff he isn't saying do this or you won't be my child for much longer it's, there's no and we can have a conversation. Maybe we'll have a Q&A later. <clears throat> but um, there's no biblical reasoning I've come across to say that someone who is truly a born-again child of God can ever forfeit, walk away from, reject eternally their salvation. Um, if you want to say that's possible, then I'll, I'll work with you and I'll say, Maybe from your vantage point, it looks like they walk away, um, but God has uh, sovereignly ordained that their life won't end in that season of wandering. So for instance, 
um, <clears throat> if I am a child of God now, and um, I don't know, or at least I think I believe, and then later, five years from now, I go, you know what? I don't believe the gospel. There are two options. I either didn't believe, um, or I did believe, at least from my vantage point, there's two options. Either I didn't believe, or I did believe, and trying to think this out, or I did believe, and I'm in a season of, of wandering and doubt that God will sovereignly ordain, I will come out of and not die in. Um, and for those that want to reference passages that make it seem like you can lose your salvation, I'll tell you, I've done entire videos on 1 Corinthians 9.27, uh, 2 Peter 2.19 and 20. Uh, try to think what else. Galatians um, being accursed, Romans 11, um, John 15, Galatia, Hebrews chapter 6, Hebrews chapter 10. All the passages people will often use to go see you can lose your salvation, and usually they're far and in between. In other words, like people who believe you can lose your salvation or walk away from it, they have a handful of scripture, maybe 10. They have 10 passages that go see you can. Um, which I can easily talk through with you if you want to talk through that. Um, but those who, like I, believe in eternal security, um, and so I have more than 10 passages for what I believe. In fact, I have have a whole, what, like 20-page document <clears throat> I could send someone. Uh, but Second Peter 2 and Galatians, I think it's 3, and... What's the other one you guys reference? First Corinthians 9. Um, those passages aren't saying that a, a born-again believer is in mind there. Or James 5, that's another one. Uh, James 5. I think it's James 5. Either way, this wasn't to be a, um, a conversation on that. Maybe later we can have like a Q&A and, and talk through that together. Uh, but we're five minutes away from ending. So if you didn't already know, uh, this is an online ministry, <coughs> and you can visit um, abovereproachministry.com to check out everything that we have available. Uh, we have completely free uh, resources. Uh, I'm trying to think what through. We have Bible study worksheets, Bible study classes. Uh, what we have right now, the biggest thing that people are taking is our completely free 40-day Bible study program. And so if you want to go deeper in the Word of God at your own pace and learn helpful skills that um, develop your Bible study methodology, if you really want to learn how to read the Bible, we have a 40-day, a free 40-day Bible study program, a free 27-day, a free 11-day, and then all these other side courses online you can take, which are free, and it's all online at abovereproachministry.com, uh, as well as, trying to think, the other thing we didn't know is we have a second podcast, which I haven't posted in a couple weeks because I've been gone. Um, but the second podcast is specifically for believers who are really trying to figure out, well, it's really for the local church. I'll say it like that. It's a podcast for the local church. And so you can um, check that out. Uh, and yeah. So... Yeah, I know the whole debate between eternal security and forfeiting salvation, trust me, I've been in deep in the trenches probably for the first six to ten months of the ministry. Um, that was one of the biggest attack points for people coming in. They were attacking that. 
And that drove me to the scriptures to go, dang, maybe they're right. And I'll tell you, when I read any scripture they put forth, I'm going to objectively read what it's saying. And of course, you want scripture to confirm scripture. You want scripture to um, help you, I guess, form a basic understanding of how you're going to approach that text. But I don't want to read my ideas about eternal security into a text like for Second Peter 2 or First um, Corinthians 9, 27. So I read all those objectively and I even did videos on them. And I'll tell you, not one of them, not one of them makes it anywhere near clear that a born-again believer can actually forfeit, walk away from. Because again, there's so many foundational ideas that we need to go through, whether it's the new heart or the new covenant or the atonement or the priesthood or you're very uh, standing with God. <clears throat> and so if you want to live believing you can lose your salvation, that's fine. Like if you have biblical reasoning behind that, I'm not going to tell you not to believe that, but <clears throat> I will say um, I've come to conclude that biblically um, and logically and theologically, all these different ways, um, my understanding of eternal security, I've drawn from the scriptures as clearest and honestly as I can. So, and a lot of people think that promotes sin. And it's like, actually, you'd be surprised. But not a conversation for today because we got to go um, in about a minute. So, if you want to uh, continue this conversation, uh, maybe um, message me privately. I'm not going to continue the conversation with each of you individually. But if I get enough feedback... Maybe that will tell me that we could do a Q&A eventually, maybe even this week, on uh, just the whole talk of um, eternal security and what the conditions in Scripture are and what they mean because there are conditions to meet that are fulfilled in the moment they're met and then there are conditions to meet that some people think have to be maintained. It's, it's madness. I understand. That's why it's a huge debate um, with people, so... That's all I have for you guys today. It is okay to disagree. Agree to disagree, John. Yeah, you're right. So maybe we'll do a Q&A. I think that'd be fun. And um, I think that's all. I'll see you guys later. Keep moving towards Jesus. Pray for my voice to come back because it's almost there, but not quite yet. So I'll see you guys possibly tomorrow, which is Thursday. No, wait. Yeah. Would it be Thursday? pull up my calendar yeah tomorrow's Thursday possibly Thursday or Friday we'll do a Q and a live stream maybe it'd be a Q&A on um, and no I'm not hyper grace but that's fine um, so yeah maybe we'll do that next time alright guys I do have to go now so I'll see you guys later